was not able to cover them all. Um, but uh, so. What I'll try to do is I've bunched a few up together that um, so, so there's a kind of big topics um, and I'll also ask the other monks if they could comment on things also so you know we'll be able to cover a few topics perhaps with some little some depth some scope anyway and uh, I know it's also you know you'd like to know where we've got our names from and what we're about, but maybe we'll do that later. Right. I've got a bunch of stuff here on karma. Collect it together. It's one of those topics that uh, often we think we understand. Because there's a there's a sort of cut down colloquial usage of the term, which means something like kind of like destiny or my lot, you know. <laughs> and this this got some truth in it, but it's by no means the whole story. So then it gets a little bit like um, you know fate or even original sin, you know. So it touches into these these things which have very unhelpful resonances for us, particularly. But karma really means um, it means action. So that makes it a little more lively, and it particularly means uh, the actions of intention. You know, so the Buddha some, once said that karma is 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 intention. It means there's some sense of a something happens in the mind deliberately go for that, you know. And then, then there's a, just even that is already karma, that's mental karma. And sometimes it, it comes out of speech or physical action. So that's it's like that. And, and so that, that's karma. Also, sometimes we talk about karma, really we mean old karma or the results. So because of an intended action, there's some kind of result happens from that. Most immediate thing that happens is, you know, I get that, that feeling resonates in my mind. So I get kind of like some uh, joyful intention that runs through my mind and I suddenly light up with that particular quality, you know. Or I, opposite, so you get that's what you call instant karma. It means immediately you get results in your own mind of, of the kind of ways in which you think or speak, you know. And then, of course, when you when you act upon those, then there are also consequences that occur externally, and uh, you know may cause one to you know feel pleased, good karma, you get good friends. Uh, if you're happy, you've done some good. You feel a sense of 
um, satisfaction with that or bad. And then the nature is also that what that kind of quality of that energy running through our systems creates a kind of little track. You know, I think they're called these sankharas. So sankharas are, are, are patterns. So if you keep thinking in a certain way, that becomes a track or a habit, and your mind runs down that track. So if you keep thinking, in, you know, or intending, you know, in ways that are generous or loving, then that becomes more available than if you're thinking in ways that are depressing or anxious or resentful. You know, so that you get, they create a kind of pattern for you. Yeah. Um, and then when one acts upon those, that kind of intensifies that. Yeah. You also got to, so there's good karma and bad karma, and then the good results, bad results. Good karma gives good results, bad karma gives bad results. And sometimes it's delayed in time. And there's also what we call mixed karma, which is some good, some bad. So you see somebody, you know, rolling around the street, dying of thirst. So you smash a a shop window and grab a bottle of water, you know, so that wasn't your water. So it's not so good, but then you save this guy's life. Very good. (laughs) And so it's really the quality of the intention, not just purely the action. Like you walk down the street and you smash the shop window and grab the bottle of water for the hell of it. Same action, but different quality of intention. You see, so, so all those things—they're not mechanical. It's not like somebody's got a little book up, up, up there and is writing down everything and adding it up. But it does form habit impressions and behavioural impressions and and even memory impressions in your own mind. So then, you know, then it's nobody else is making that judgment. But that's what tends to become form for you. Yeah. So somebody's asking about, uh, there's also another kind of karma, which I'll talk about, um, which is the, the karma that is those particular actions, mental actions, which help you to, to understand and release yourself from karma. So this is what we call meditation, it's called kamatana, it means a basis in karma and action is you, you do things like meditate, develop insight, forgive people. You do things that I mean, you actually deliberately work on your mind to to release yourself from particular habit patterns. Yeah. You know, so they're not trapping you. You're not caught in those. And that's called a karma. At least the end of karma because you you kind of that that bit's no longer working for you. You don't have that regret or that guilt or that resentment anymore. And deeper than that, you begin to understand, as you work on that, the experience of anatta, non-self, which means there isn't, even though there's karma, there's nobody actually experiencing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what, what is experienced is the, is the result. So it's rather like, you know, what is running now really is karma, karma formations. They're running they're kind of looping and creating this pattern of apparent solidity called me, which actually, when you try to put your finger on it, it's always shifting and changing. It's because there's a whole range of different patterns that are inherited. Yeah. 
So when we begin to kind of sense that and practice with that, then there's a, it doesn't stick because there isn't somebody it sticks to. Um, anyway, so somebody um, find it bringing this concept sounds like punishment and reward and bringing guilt and anxiety to my practice and uh, maybe feel a bit rigid and ju- judgmental. But, however, believing in karma seems important. But um, somebody said it's, it uses a moral compass to understand consequences. I don't need to believe in karma for that. So what am I missing? Is there some other value I should be investigating? Well, I think one needs to kind of really understand that, that karma is what creates you, you know. So, and it's not all bad by any means. Basically, the human birth is considered pretty good. We have a lot of good things going for us. And that we, for example, we have the ability to, to reflect, you know. So other creatures can't, the spiders can't do that. Um, you know, they can't kind of learn anything much and reflect upon their actions. They just do it. Uh, humans, we have this something in us. We've got the skillful res- uh, human birth. means something you can actually notice what's happening, take a look at it, assess whether you want to stay with this or not, and, you know, change. So that's considered really great. Um, you know, that, that's why it's considered the this is the place for awakening, for liberation, because we can we can contemplate. So that's very that's good karma to be human. <clears throat> and um, one shouldn't think it's too. It isn't a you know. There's nobody judging, but just to recognise that in, in a way it gives you back your life because it's saying really no matter what anybody else says or does, you know. You, what you think and do and act right now, that's, if you, if you take charge of that, then you're taking charge of your life, you know. So you, it comes back to you. You have the power. You have the authority. You have the possibility to say, you know, I'm going this way or I'm not going that way, you know. And you've got, it may be difficult, of course, but you've got some sense of being able to steer and determine and commit in ways that you think this is better, or this is what I understand, this feels good, this feels right. You can, you can understand the true, and you can understand the good. You know? And so that gives you it's a tremendous gift because it means your life becomes very precious and valuable and also just purely yours. You know? It's up to, to you. So it, it places it back. So that you know, it takes away the idea that karma is some kind of thing hanging over our heads, judging us. No, no, karma is now what you do. Yeah? That's, that's the point of it. Yeah? And, and in order, so that it really does in, encourage us to contemplate the kind of you know, pushes and impulses and energies that are, that are, that are making us operate how we operate. So, you know, it's, you know, this, this is important stuff because this is what's going to form and become me in in the future, you know, tomorrow it's going to, you know, the way I'm acting now repeatedly is going to form who I'm going to be. So 
I will look at that, you know, I will check that out. Start get, and even things like doubt and worry, anxiety, these are definitely have effects. Feeling, you know, so it's not to be um, heavy about it, it's just to, just to sense life is important. What you do, what you think, it counts. Um, and you, you are, you're, you're in charge of it. And then you take, pick that up, because it's your life. So I think that does, to me, that kind of makes it a little more interesting and alive. Sometimes um, somebody's wondering about illness and rebirth and karma. I have a a life-threatening illness. I'm afraid that unwholesome karma will come to fruition in the next life. Of course, there's been a lot of wholesome karma created in this life too. Is there anything I can do we put it bluntly, to maximize the chances that the wholesome car will win out at the moment of death. <laughs> Which is, yes, right. Mm. Well, recollect, you know. Uh, it's also, I think, sometimes one can feel like, you know, that, that everything you've done is going to be presented at the pearly gates, or the not pearly gates, and say, okay, here's a list. But really, the important thing is the dominant, dominant trends, the dominant tendencies in your life. You know, so, okay, you know, you were snappy at somebody this morning and so forth. But maybe the, the, what really counts is the dominant current, not every little tiny ripple and splash in that. The dominant trend is going to be the one that's most important. So you don't have to get too hung up over every little foible that one, that one has... Um, followed. Some of it is also non-intentional. You know, we just kind of ricochet, we're a bit careless or we're not very present so you get that. Uh, so really the important thing is to, is to just focus and, and uh, you don't, don't worry and doubt really because that there's a, a results to doing that as well. Um, you know, but to, to they recollect. I think what the Buddha encouraged people to recollect every day because death is coming is their, their virtues. To recollect the good you've done or even to make it even more kind of bottom line the bad that you haven't done that you could have done. <laughs> I mean we can do a lot of damage humans. So this one is refrain from that, 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 you know, that's good. That's good because you can sense there is some sense of moral conscience and concern there that keeps us in check. And then the good we have done, and it may not be that, you know, it doesn't, with it, how it's played out in the world isn't so important as how, it, how it's been felt and sensed and committed to in your own mind. That's why the mind is, is the, the big force for karma, not, not the body. So if we really, that's why meditation is, is really the, the best thing to be doing. You know, if you can, cultivating your mind, not just meditating, but actually deliberately thinking things through, making commitments to generosity or renunciation or patience or truthfulness, you know, then, then you can at the end of the day, I told the truth, you know. And just stay with what that felt like. 
the more that you do that, really not just reciting the ideas, but stay with the fe- the feeling of of the the good that you did, you know, or the thing that you know you could have lashed back at somebody who was unpleasant to, but you held it and you held your dignity, very good, you know. And it's, it's a bit that sometimes people neglect to do. We sort of go into a fault finding mode, or just you know crash out altogether. So that's that's a very important thing to to I think you know end of every day. I generally do this myself is to recollect death, because uh, then it sort of keeps clearing things. And then someone suggesting that uh, suicidal thoughts and maybe they're working out the previous karma this time so they're not going to do this in spite of this mental thought pattern so you know of course it's the case that well whether you you know I don't know whether you want to everyone's to take on previous lives or just hold that as a as a possibility but what we can say is we do have some can have some pretty disturbing mental patterns that that don't seem to go away that quickly, you know, depressions, anxieties, and so forth that are there. And then um, just uh, the sense of being able to, to say, well, okay, this is like this, not going to follow that thought, not going to believe in it, just going to see it as a, as, a, as a visitor, you know. And uh, then at least, you know, even that's still running, but it's not alive. So, so everyone has stuff running, you know, and it's just you don't have to keep going there and, and making it alive. You can uh, just sense it's part of the landscape, but it, it doesn't have to be um, charged up for you. And that, that's very good. That's very good because one can get so feel so miserable with some of these mental patterns and habits. And this is what, why karma, really with karma, you've got to keep karma and anatta, the two together. There's just this stuff happening, but it's really not self. But if you catch it, if you get caught in it, it becomes you. That's exactly it. If you can bear with it, hold it, step back from it, release it, you're free. If, you get, if, you, if it, there's an attachment to it, it becomes you. It doesn't become you, it just it can can be it can be released that's that's the point of insight meditation one, one small point to add to just one small point to, to add to uh, um, the previous bit about uh, uh, preparing the mind for death Giving up um, any old uh, resentments and uh, animosities, I think, is uh, is important and to uh, forgive everyone in your life that you're holding anything against. Even you know, it's not necessary to go out and find them and forgive them face to face, but just in your own heart to to, uh, to to drop anything you're holding. There's a question here on the contemplation of 
death, then I'll, I'll, that follows on from that, really, that, that's exactly the point. Um, and at times one does come close to it. Uh, I had a very interesting experience when I was at a couple of these quite close calls, but the last, last um, time, this was when I was going on a pilgrimage around Mount Kailash in Tibet, which is a very special place, but it's, it's also quite high up, so you don't get much oxygen. It's about a third or a quarter of the amount of oxygen you normally get, so it's quite difficult to keep going. And it, it, the, the, the pilgrimage is considered to be a mandala of birth and death. And so you start off, and it's like you, you, there's all sorts of uh, um, shrines and things like this that you, as you go around. And uh, there's a place where you come into your place of death. And it's, it's a place where you just about feel dead anyway because you've been struggling along around this mountain with no air for two days, no ox- not enough oxygen for two days. So you get this place, you're just kind of really woozy and spaced out and uncertain whether to go on. And there's a place where, you, where actually it's a shrine where you um, bring up your own death. That is, you start to, maybe you start to think of people around you, like your parents or your grandparents who passed away, and then you express gratitude to them. And it's very moving, because when you, you feel like you're actually on the edge of death yourself, it becomes very important to feel you've really cleared it, you know, and you've really said it. You've not, you know, and, you, and then recollecting your own mortality. I, personally, I felt this enormous sense of the whole life has been a gift. You know, when you're right on the edge of it, you think, well, actually, it's amazing that you've been given this life. So there's a great sense of gratitude comes up with that recollection of death, for me. In that, that, that we die is obvious and natural and bound to happen. That we're born, that is not. <laughs> you know, so wow, you got given something and you got, you got to play with it for so many years and then that's the end of the game kind of thing. So some gratitude around that. And I found it very, then deliberately acknowledging your own body. You know, this physical form which whatever it's the, you know, it's limitations, but somehow it's been a home and uh, a place that you can do good within and live within and, you know, be supported by. So some gratitude towards the body and gratitude towards one's mind, well, it's kind of squeaky bits and non-functional bits. You've been able to kind of think in a crude fashion of some kind or another, sense of direction. So guess once you start to sense these things are all going to be leaving you, you know, you won't be able to think anymore or intend anymore. Then you think, hey, that's been really good, you know, to be able to do that. And so a great sense of of uh, gratitude and just the, the sense of it's been given to you. Don't be stingy and hang on to it, you know, more than more than is allowed. It's, you now you just give it away. Give it, it was given to you. Now just give it give it back. And I found that very beautiful way of contemplating death rather than in a, uh, from some fear or, or, or negative sense, but actually just really giving, giving oneself back, uh, letting, letting the, you know, 
giving it up um, in a joyful way. So I often practice like that, and it keeps things clear. There's a, I thought what might be particularly helpful at this time, this is a few questions on practice in daily life, of course, a topic that always requires and supported by skillful reflection. I'd ask Ajahn Janto to talk on it. (laughs) (laughs) If you could give yogis two or three bits of advice regarding practice and living dharmically, what would this advice be? Practice in daily life you mentioned checking to see if one is doing what is really important, etc., and if not, changing that. How does one balance that, the danger of rearranging samsara? And regarding practice and its effects, as I deepen my practice and study of the Dhamma, I feel less connected with surrounding culture, worldly events and activities, etc. Advice, please, as to how to live in this world and know its illusion. So, yes, yeah, similar. Uh, similar areas where we um, are starting to realize mm, what you could call the, the illusory nature of what we take to be real in our experience and through practice. We start to meditate and suddenly the realities of me and mine and my world and my feelings get seen to be something other than we thought they were. They're not necessarily as real on the outside as we had taken them to be, but often creations, my creations in my own mind. And so, how to bring some of the insights that we have on the meditation cushion or in the retreats into the actual the doing of life, the mixing it up, the uh, living of it, where we're not um, able to control the conditions as much as we can here. Well, I suppose um, there are ways to do this, and each one of us has to discover, I guess, the other night, what I was pointing to was my appreciation that I had to, in some way, take responsibility to find out by experimentation and, and just observations of the effects of my own practices and, and how I was engaging with, with life and, my pra- and, and practicing in life, noticing the effects, noticing the results, and uh, feeling free to take responsibility to, to, to do that, first of all. And then learning, you know, being conscious of what the results are. 
So for each of us, we can you know, see what works. And some types of practice are going to be more helpful for some of us than, than others. And that'll be different, uh, depending on how we hear them, how we use them, what our characters are, what our karma is. Uh, for me, I can share you a little, with you a little bit about what has been helpful for me, two or three sort of pieces that I know I can, I've carried with me, which has uh, been helpful in regard to this way of broadening practice out so it includes the whole of my life, not just the practice times or the monastery times, but all of it. Um, one thing I have to start by remembering is to include all of who I am. And what that means, uh, I don't really know, since as we know and have been hearing, there is no me here anyway. It's all anatta. But for me, in a particular uh, situation, I'll be feeling myself as somebody. I'll be feeling emotions. I'll be feeling uh, my, uh, my world and my humanity. You know, that we are humans. We're not just uh, uh, practice machines learning how to become unhuman by seeing the truth of anatta. We are still human beings. So whether or not we realize anatta, not self, in our own experience, we've got to stay in touch with that, whatever it is that we, we, we have in our uh, hearts, which is, say, uh, human, our humanity. So for me... That has to do with including, as Ajahn Suchita has been talking about a lot during this retreat, including it all. So coming into the present moment and not trying to just focus on what I feel is going to be the important point or what's the important part of my practice, but to accept myself as I find myself. So to practice however I might be practicing, to start from where I'm actually at not from where I think I am in my practice, where I'd like to be, where I want to get to, but what I actually find right here. And so for that, it takes uh, loving kindness, uh, metta uh, in Pali, in the sense of not a, not a particular feeling of strong, um, blissful, loving feelings, but the kind of unconditional acceptance, unconditional uh, tolerance and inclusiveness kind of love which really were given the image in the Buddhist teaching for loving kindness as a mother uh, loving her only child. Unconditional love that no matter what that child does, there's still an acceptance. You're still a place at the table in the home. That kind of caring uh, as a way of holding um, all of what is right now. And so starting from where I'm at and not trying to uh, split myself off from what I don't like, being accept the present situation. And in coming into any particular situation, then basically it's a matter of uh, mindfulness, what we keep talking about, awareness or sati, this knowing what's happening. And this is something that we can be doing wherever we are, of course. We don't have to be feeling concentrated or feeling peaceful. We can know our mind, we can know what's happening in any situation. And that sounds simple and maybe obvious, but it has a profound effect, I've found, to keep noticing that and to start to develop, and this is just a way of talking, but uh, as a kind of a step to develop a relationship with my own uh, 
awareness or my own attentiveness, to start noticing it. In fact, it's not two things. There's not a me and my awareness which are split from each other. But it might feel that way at, at first. And so just noticing this quality, and it needs to be quality which is, as I say, it's a heart quality, accepts and actually cares for what's happening. I might not feel the way I want to feel. I might feel angry or, or full of defilement. But there's at least enough acceptance to include that without uh, uh, trying to block it out. And then recognize the knowing. So there's the attentiveness. So how to do that? I mean, we all know that, and we can start to practice it on the meditation cushion. But ways to bring it into uh, times when we are busy, when we're not feeling peaceful, we need, we need tricks and techniques. And uh, that's one of the things that the practice I, I talked about a little bit the other night of the Bhutto uh, repetition in the Thai forest monasteries. It can be used that way. Um, I personally haven't used the mantra repetition because it's something that is created. We create it in our mind. And uh, I've used instead body sensation. So my advice would be to get to know your body and do it in meditation as well so that you can, whenever you're uh, feeling like you've lost the thread, you're not practicing, you're caught up with your mind in whatever the situation you can go to the body, any, any sensation in your body, any movement in your body, whether it's intentional, subtle or strong or unintentional, like just the body doing its own things. There's always something you can feel, uh, something moving. And by keeping this and developing it as a meditation, in the context of noticing this attentive mind, the awareness, the, the mindfulness in the present moment, the two start to, to help each other, as it were. So when you become aware of the body sensation, immediately you're also aware of your uh, attention and you're more mindful than you were a moment ago. And by doing this in the sense of uh, again and again, uh, starting again, starting again, beginning again, so being present for one moment at a time, rather than trying to build something up which is... A, an intensive concentration state that you're trying to maintain, which then needs to be protected. But simply one moment is enough. So you can always do one moment of mindfulness. And that's enough. That's all you're asking of yourself. And then again, another moment. Be aware now. Okay. And that's it. Complete release. Don't, don't have to carry anything over to the next one. And now again, be aware now. And be aware now. And be aware now. And so if we have something that's definite that we can always touch, like physical sensation, or if you choose to use the word putto, or some of you who know Ajahn Sumedho's teachings, he uses this, what he calls a sound of silence, this kind of a high vibrational sound that some people can hear, something which is always present, that you can always use as an anchor for awareness, not a concentration object in the sense of trying to focus into it, because for that we need special conditions. The mind needs to be free of the hindrances, we need to, or free enough of the hindrances, and we need to have a, a quiet enough place to focus exclusively on an object. So we don't use it that way. We use it just as an anchor for awareness. So in this wide open uh, uh, type of, of awareness that Ajahn Suchito has been describing, and at least the way I've been hearing him, where you can be aware of all of it, 
and yet we have something to hold on to. So you can use uh, sensation in your fingers, for instance, and just train yourself. I, I've done this uh, for a long time, just to when you're, say, talking to somebody or you're doing something simple, it's much easier if it's something that does not involve thinking, to just have a, a particular movement that you're also keeping going. So it might be rubbing two fingers together, just very gently rubbing the two fingers together so that you're noticing the sensation as you're doing what you're doing. And we were talking in the group today, that uh, one of the groups, that that can almost seem more complicated uh, because you're doing two things at once instead of one thing at once. But it's a way of training the mind that I've found to be very useful and leads towards a, a steadiness of awareness which doesn't get um, caught into the movements of everyday life. You start to, you start to have a, a wider and more consistent uh, knowing quality. So remembering to not be asking ourselves to change, to be different than we are, starting with how we find ourselves now, staying in the present moment, and using the body is what I would suggest, you know, it's my advice, using the body as a way to stay present and starting to just notice, just start to get to know this quality of, of awareness itself. We can even start looking at what is it, you know, that is being aware, turning the mind inwards towards itself. So you can do things like uh, create practices for yourself. Say if you walk to work the same way every day, then uh, for that time that you walk from point A to point B, you can say, okay, for this time it's going to be my walking to work meditation. And just be noticing the feelings in your body as you walk. And for that time, let go of all the important thoughts that you normally have to think and which take your attention. It's okay if your mind is still thinking, but you're placing your consciously placing your attention just to notice your body as you walk. Not to the exclusion of everything else so that you bump into the stop sign or people in front of you. You stay aware of everything that's happening, but you're also just noticing the feelings in your body as you walk. You could do it in other repetitive times that you have in your life. So if you're in a place where there's an elevator, you can have elevator meditation so that every time that you get into the elevator, you are with your body as you're in the elevator, rather than uh, caught in the story of whatever's happening in our minds. So it's these kinds of ways of just feeling free to take responsibility, experiment, see what the results are, create little practices for yourself with this emphasis on not needing to get someplace uh, in particular, to get someplace special, but tune into what's already there, this quality of, of awareness which is present right now, and in that way, the mind will quiet naturally without us having to quieten it. Um, and then, I guess to touch on that last uh, question, the uh, samsara and um, its realities, its, it, the importance and the, uh, its needs and drama, uh, is seen in the context of something else which is real and perhaps becomes more real, which is this in this all-pervading and uh, centering sense of awareness at, at, at the heart of who we are. Um, that then 
for me, creates its own perspective on these things. Important topic, so um, there's some sort of simple things, well, hopefully simple things. I think for a start, you've got to, why we take refuge is to keep remembering yourself as a, I don't know, I'd say a disciple of the Buddha, but someone you know, with better commitment to Dhamma practices. Because you need to create a kind of cultural sense to, to counteract the all the messages are getting from everywhere else about who you are, what you belong to, and what you should and shouldn't be. <laughs> so you'd line up to something that's got some values that you, that you feel good about. So that's very important. And I think also, you know, um, having friends, spiritual friends, see, that helps again to get dialogue and discussion around things that, that you uh, find helpful rather than talking about other stuff or with people who are not attuned to that. So you're getting dialogue and hearing things and saying things that keep you, you know, in the in that whole Dhamma arena. Yeah. Kalyanamita. And um so you know then you can use just gotta work against the, the, the consumerism of the society. Recognizing, you know, well, you've got to be in it, but can you can you restrain? Can you filter? Can you really determine what you need, not what you're being told you need? <laughs> you know, those are, that's a really important act of discrimination. You need to see through the glitter. It's very important. And uh, so I think those. Also, I'd echo what Ajahn Janto is saying. You need a little reminder, and. Uh, this is where, as lay people, you've got a great advantage over monks, because you have pockets, you see. <laughs> and I think, you know, the day will come when we have pockets, but at the moment, we're still behind the times. <laughs> pockets. It's, uh, I'm not going to disrobe for pockets, but... So, you have something in your pocket, you see, so when you're about to lose it, you just have a little squeaky toy in your pocket. So when you're about to lose your temper, you squeak, squeak. (laughs) 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 So I think this could be a new development for Dhamma practice. (laughs) People walking around going, squeak, squeak. Well, let's have a look. It's some for you, Jen Ponadam. There's one there, and you you were the one who talked about this, so you better answer it. (laughs) 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 Might as well pop that one in while you're at it. There's a 
a number of questions here on various aspects of knowing uh, the knowing faculty, knowing objects. Um, one of them is about not knowing objects but not being affected by them. Did not the Buddha resonate from that which was known? Another one is awareness and love the same. And one that says, when I settle back to see what happens to a arising phenomena or what it lands on, I find nothing. Am I missing out? What do you find? Okay. <laughs> uh, Uh, um, the, beginning with the one, how can the knowing no objects but not be affected by them? Do not the Buddha resonate from that which was known? Uh, there is an implied, like a lot of times with the thinking about this, there's a, uh, the way things are phrased is important. And there's, I, in this kind of a question, there's, there's sort of an implied view of self. Um, uh, there's knowing of the object and then there's reacting to the object uh, uh, dealing with the object and these, you know, these, these are processes and it's not uh, uh, and what I'm recommending for, what I have been recommending in meditation practice is just knowing just trying experimenting with just knowing without reacting or resonating when you're in the in the activity and you have to deal with things, then you have to uh, invoke that other process, the process of action, so that then there's a, um, a dealing with the object. Yeah. But uh, trying to get an understanding of the, the processes, it's useful to step back and work with just knowing. And there's, and there's nobody doing the knowing. You know, so there's no... Uh, and uh, there's nobody doing the, the action when the action is done. It's just... Uh, um, uh, it's, just it's just another process. And I know that's that's tricky to understand. That's, that's, that's subtle, but uh, that... Uh, that's what. That, that's how you'll begin to get an understanding of that. This kind of stuff is by direct experience. So uh, it's a very good use of your time in meditation is to try and simply know, you know to, to to try to access that point of the pure witness and just allow the mental objects to be known as objects. give up any idea that you have to deal with them, or you have to resonate with them, or understand them, or love them, or or uh, sort them, or anything. Just just know them. Uh, and I don't think awareness and love are the same. Um, uh, Knowing is, uh, love involves some aspect of appreciation and valuing and embracing. 
and knowing is, is, is completely neutral. It's just knowing. You know? uh, uh, wisdom and compassion in, in Buddhism are two high, high faculties, and you know, they can go together, but they're, and, uh, but they're not really quite the same thing. You know, there, there's, there's, there's the knowing, and then there's the, uh, the arousing of compassion and, and love, loving kindness. You know, this is, this is a, a different faculty. Well, they're related. They're intimately related, but they're not. It's not quite the same thing, and it should really shouldn't be confused because it, uh, it would, if you uh, take them as synonymous, then the knowing is going to always be flavored with a kind of a judgmental, subtly judgmental. You know that I, I should like this stuff that I'm knowing, but knowing should be actually associated uh, with equanimity which is a uh, um, uh, neutral mind, uh, except a specific neutrality, tatra majata is a, is a phrase. It translates literally as middleness, middleness about that. That's a, uh, and it, it's, uh, it's often translated as specific neutrality. So it means whatever arises, you're in the middle about it. So you're, you're not moved. So when an object arises, you have tatramajata is middleness. You're in the middle. You're you're in this calm place of knowing, and that's the uh, that's a faculty of equanimity. Um, and when the question about uh, or what happens to a rising phenomenon, where do they settle? They, uh, uh, I think you're, he says, I, 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 uh, I find nothing. Am I missing out? I don't think so. I think you, you, you maybe if you're missing, you're just not. You, you may have some expectation that's not being met, but you know, what's occurring is phenomena arise and phenomena pass away. They don't really land anywhere. They come out of the void and they go back into the void. And, and it's just seeing that movement in and out of the void of manifestation. That's the, uh, that's, that's the process. Yeah. <clears throat> but no, all, all this kind of stuff is quite subtle. And uh, it's the danger of getting caught up in head games thinking about it too much. Uh, it's, which is kind of benevolent. It's, you know, some used to using the intellect to think about uh, Dhamma questions, but uh, it's not the best use of your time when you're on retreat and you have lots of time for inner work. And so, you know, I would just kind of like to leave this topic with the point that just try and be present with the experience. What's happening now at this moment? Just witnessing from a point of stillness and a point of equanimity, and let the you know let the theoretical details sort themselves out. And if you want afterwards, you can read all the books on Abhidhamma and try and get the theory sorted out. But right now, just deal with the the experience. You know? 
go on and just do this one. Won't take okay. okay the, uh, there's another question that was addressed to me be, about the sleeping yoga that I uh, spoke about, going to watching the last breath and the first breath. And the specific question is, um, uh, could you elaborate how one goes about it and why it is done? Uh, how one goes about it is quite simple. It's just just what I said. You just make an aspiration, a wish. May I, an intention. You know, may I catch the last breath, falling asleep in the first breath, waking up. And you can then aid that process by meditating lightly on the breath as long as you can as you drift into sleep. Not forcing their mind because they, they'll just keep you awake. But just allow the mind to sort of rest on the bodily sensation of breathing in a, in a relaxed way until it begins to drift and then let it drift into sleep. And uh, it's possible to, to keep this... Um, to, to keep some thread of consciousness going, and one of the and there's many benefits to it, but one of the benefits relates to what we're talking about the knowing mind because uh, you can see that that pure witnessing knowing behind even as cognition and 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 thought drop away, that knowing is still there, and you, even when you lose the faculty of thought, that clear knowing is still there. So it has nothing to do with the thought process. And you can watch these other processes drop away and keep that going. Um, I think it's useful, too, uh, from the simple point of view of extending the range of, of, of uh, conscious awareness. We, uh, the, the, the word Buddha means awake. That's what Buddha means. You know? You're trying to extend your... your, your um, uh, conscious awareness into other realms. So this realm of sleep is a realm that's lost in fog and obscurity most of the time. But you can actually extend conscious awareness into that territory. Um, uh, and it is possible to take it right into the, at least into the sleep state. I've 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 heard it said. I've read it that it's possible even to keep conscious awareness thread going through deep sleep, but I can't say I've ever managed to do that one. But uh, into the dream state, it, it, it's quite interesting. You can cross that threshold completely aware. It is possible to do. Um, and while we're on that topic, I'll mention two other... Two other... Uh, Practices you can take up if you're interested in exploring the, the sleep states, uh, the dream states. One is a, a practice that uh, fosters uh, lucid dreaming, yeah. which is a awareness in the dream state. Uh, th- this is a practice for you know, daily life when you're in, the, in, in, uh, in your ordinary life. Five or six times during the day, you stop what you're doing just for a few moments, no more than a few seconds is needed, and ask yourself seriously, am I awake or dreaming? You do that every, You have to do that every day, five or six times, quite methodically, 
at sort of random times during the day and ask yourself seriously and kind of really think about what's the flavor of this experience of sleep, a dream, or is this real? And it only takes a few seconds. The idea is you establish then a habit of mind and then after, usually before a week is out, usually four or five days, you'll find yourself in a dream asking yourself that. And the first time you might be confused and say, oh, I'm awake, and it, nothing happens. But, it, but then it'll, it'll occur, oh, I'm dreaming. And it may wake you up right away. You'll be startled. But then you get used to it. You know, second, third time it happens, you're used to it. And then you're lucid dreaming. Yeah? And then you're, you're, you're in control in your, in your dream state. And it's very interesting. So it's just a little little uh, practice you can try and see uh, uh, see if you can get any results. Uh, another another practice is uh, uh, keeping uh, a dream journal that is a way of fostering dream recall. You make the the habit keep a notebook and a light beside the bed and uh, make the resolution you're going to write down your dreams when they happen. And what will occur after only a few nights is you'll start waking up after each dream and writing the notebook. Um, I did this for several months, and I gave it up because I was losing so much sleep. I got, <laughs> I got so, so good at dream recall, I'd wake up every couple of hours and write several pages of detailed weird stuff that was happening in the dream. And, uh, it, 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 but it really fosters that, 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 that dream recall. You get, uh, you, you get quite good at recalling your dreams. Yeah. I'll, just, I'll leave that with, with you as a stuff to play with and experiment with. Yeah. I just think I'd comment on where where do things land. It's like one of those questions that are not really supposed to have answers. They're just uh they're just like um things that help to you to let go of the movement forward and onto something. So it's like something that keeps pulling you back. You see what I mean? You know, that is normally something happens and you, you're acting and wondering what to do about it. But So that the, the, your focus will then tend to narrow onto the activity, the formation, the sankara, the, the sensations, whatever's coming up. So, and then you're already into what I call secondary territory. That's it's already arisen and you're dealing with stuff. This takes the idea of where's this landing. It gives you a, a way of a focus that's not bending forward, a focus that's not tightening up on something, a focus is just, you know, sort of like stepping back to receiving, you know. And you may f- seem, when you do that, you, you may experience something that you think is nothing, but uh, the more you sense it, you can sense uh, particular qualities there, you know, particular atmospheres, you might say. And so that you can kind of keep unpeeling those 
those uh, senses. It can be an atmosphere, which actually the atmosphere there will tend to be carry the causative factor that's causing the stuff to arise. So if the atmosphere in that, that stage is slightly wavering, you know, then you get a kind of, that will definitely affect what's coming up. So the more it takes you back to the very root of causation, you can do, if you begin to discern it. And it also gives you a chance to, to, to check the movement forward or tighten up or get into all that kind of rigmarole that we can get into when we contemplate our mental processes. You know, it sort of gives you a little bit of leverage from it. That's what I would say about it. Um, there's a question, a couple of questions here on motivation. Buddha says, practice like your head was on fire. It sounds fervent. Indeed. Yet in meditation instructions, emphasis on patience and acceptance of whatever arises. How do I reconcile these two seeming opposites? Signed, Mr. Anatta. <laughs> what is the role of inspiration? Right, balanced relationship to teacher. In life lately, I found myself coasting, thinking I don't need to practice much because of past insights that were transformative. Can you speak more about motivation and urgency and effort? So, well... Yeah, there's, there's, um, I think there's kind of two, two senses in that. One's called sangwega, which means something like a sense of urgency um, to recognize perhaps the precariousness of our situation. Things are going fine now. Tomorrow you might get struck by something, struck down by something physical, um, some somebody near you might be, be deeply afflicted. You know, events can suddenly turn. So that sense of while you're still got, you know, body and mind in reasonable condition, don't go picking blueberries. You know, <laughs> just focus because <laughs> it doesn't. It can turn in a moment. It can turn. You know, it's, it's not as solid as it seems. That's what Maranasati is about, in a way. And it's about karma as well, what karma teaches on karma about. It's like, you know, be, be, it's not about being gloomy or fatalistic, but be poised. Stay in that poise. Look for that poise. Don't get, don't uh, nod off in your life, you know. The other sense is, is called pasada or trust, which means there's something, there's something better for me, there's something good for me, there's, a, there's awakening for me, others can, I can, you know, so that sense of that something that draws you on, attracts you. To, so, you know, we should never feel life is just about plugging along, getting by, but there's something, you know, beautiful we can open into. And for that, it's good to um, recollect, you know, pe- pe- other beings who one feels some sense of confidence and respect for, realize we're all born here, you know, and uh, that beings, I'm not just talking about, say, Buddhist teachers, I'm talking about, you know, people who had deep afflictions and have come through, 
you know, people who've had really severe physical damage and managed to come through, people who've had desperate addictive habits and come through, you know, people who've uh, had all kinds of nasty things happen to them have come through and have sort of, you know, kept their dignity and, and moved forward. And I think this is really a sign of the, the potentials of the human spirit, human heart. And so this is, this is also that possible, that possibility for us all. If we, uh, um, so th- those two help to keep the sense of motivation. I think if your head's on fire, the thing you want to do is perhaps not panic, you know. <laughs> but, you know, be focused. <laughs> somebody telling me that this was a friend of his he was a, uh, a doctor a cardiac doctor and he was having a, a date with his girlfriend and while, while they were out on the date she had a cardiac arrest and he was so shocked and in panic that he, he didn't know what to do she died you know it was that quick just kind of lost it, such such alarm that he lost it. You know, so it's even when your head's on fire. You know, there's a certain requirement to keep cool in a crisis. The story I had also of um, you know look look when you have motivation, look to stay. Uh, aware of possibilities, you know. So another friend of mine who's a Hungarian, and he said in the previous generation that the, the Hungary's got, got a lot of flat land in it, and they had barns, well, like Kansas, I guess, or somewhere like that, where you store huge amounts of wheat. And there's an empty barn, they're having a, a kind of a dance or something like that in a wooden barn. And there's 800 people in this massive barn dancing, and, and the barn caught fire. You know, and his grandfather was in this barn, you know, and everybody rushed towards the doors to get out of the barn. But of course, the doors are can only let, say, three or four people out at a time. So this massive panic, people were just getting trampled and so forth. And uh, you know, his grandfather just stopped and paused, looked around. And realized he could he just smash his way out through the wall because it's only wood. And he just smashed, you know, out through a window, knocked a window out, and he got out. And he was one of the few who escaped. So, you see, you know, it's not about, urgency is not about, uh, you know, getting uptight and tense and flustered. In fact, that's not good at all. Urgency is recognized, you know, in some ways the barn's on fire. You know, that, you know don't panic. <laughs> it's important not to get panicky or, or tense, or but be aware. And there's a way you can come out of anger. You can come out of despair. You can come out of depression. You know, those are really important things to to sense. You know, there's things here that are are spoiling our lives. You know, they're, they're, they're hindering us. They're, they're holding us back. Um, we don't need to be this way. We can get, we can practice towards clearing those, you know, and, it, and it's uh, it's doable, it's relevant, 
and in a way this is what we're here for as you know individuality even if there's nobody here There's also sort of a something about the relationship with a teacher, and there's a couple of quest, question here. Somebody's asking about the right or balanced relationship to the teacher figure, and uh, there's another rather longer question about um, faith is often described in terms of unshakable confidence in the triple gem. Is the Sangha aspect which has been quite shaky for me in recent months in the context of a monastery, my sense of trust and confidence in one of the very senior members of the monastic Sangha is gone. In broad terms, it said the Sangha aspect refers to the human aspiration towards awakening and freedom. What's not clear is where real human beings fit into that, particularly when they take on a role of high responsibility and visibility. So, you know, if we look... So, say, towards, say, monks or nuns, you know, and as, as people who carry our, our faith, our inspiration, or it could be any teachers, really. Um, there's a sense of, you know, be, being attentive to that. Obviously, um, you know, really the sense of refuge, Sangha refuge, is not in monks or nuns, it's in, in, in uh, enlightened beings. So that... The, 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 what are called the four kinds of enlightened beings, are the stream enterer and the once returner and the non-returner arahant. So, so these, of course, this means can lay lay people, or you know. So it's not really a, a monastic thing. That sangha, in that sense, is the the Aryan sangha, and that's that's what your faith can reside in. Of course, you don't always know, you know, <laughs> where they are. <laughs> So it can be a little bit kind of on a virtual level. Uh, uh, but to, to recognize with, with teachers, anyone one sees as a, as a mentor, role model, well, how to handle that, you know. For everybody's welfare, you know. Because projection and is... is natural thing we all do to each other we all mean something to each other you know it's not just shapes and forms there's some way in which people represent something that's you know i find interesting or or frightening you know negative projections um and then you want to sort of use those skillfully so one thing about the monastic order is because in this kind of particular form the shaven head and the robe and so forth it does it's a clear symbol something about uh, purity and trust and um, celibacy and things that we feel well this person's not going to do some number on me you know hopefully but unfortunately some do <laughs> a very small number but uh, you only have to have one or two of those and it seems to destroy the whole thing you know? so you've got to be careful about how much you, you really place upon another human being you know it's, uh, it's not good for yourself and it's not good for them you know. so, so certainly you, know, you want to look at them and say 
this reminds me of, say, of, of honesty. That's what I really revere. This reminds me of, of harmlessness. That's what I really revere. You know, this reminds me of, of you know, other qualities that I really respect and you want to take them internally. You know? There's only so much you can ask another person to hold for you. Um, the thing about the monastic order is that not all of them are teachers as such, and they're not always particularly cut out for that or interested in that. But they do, they can act as, say, as things you can resonate from in that particular way, um, and a sense of the main commitments. But the way it is, is that, you know, once you, you become a monk, then you just start getting more senior every day. <laughs> it just happens. You don't necessarily get wiser every day. <laughs> I wish it were, were that way. I could just sort of sit back and let, you know, every day it just rolled along for me and a little more wisdom, a few more defilements dropping away. <laughs> so, you know, you could be sort of 10, 15 years and still, you know, actually quite quite um, confused being. <laughs> but probably, hopefully, less confused than if you hadn't. <laughs> Just, <laughs> so said, well, it's a lot better than he could be, or has been <laughs> in the past. <laughs> so there's that sense of, you know, with, with monks, a kind of sense of, you know, keep, keep them a little bit distant. <laughs> You know, there are people who definitely are trying and aspiring, but they may very well have their their weak spots. And uh, even if they're very senior, you know, um, and it, so it doesn't help if you're just too too um, sort of blind or adulating in it, or you know, because you don't so you don't want to give a person that message that they're just so fantastic. I mean, a sense of mutual respect is and. Uh, um, you know that that's important, and that you kind of also that the thing is that, that what is helpful is that the you know the monastic rule, the vinya, which is set up in many ways to avoid to prevent uh, monks kind of manipulating lay people or or harming or abusing or you know or demanding or anything like that. So. So that's really helpful. And if someone is doing that, then, you know, you can say, look, you're supposed to be, you've definitely got a way to, to uh, you know, make them feel responsible for that. Because that's laid down, that's part of what we sign up for, really, is for that. So there's a kind of, definitely a, a cut-off point. And if someone is not behaving that way, then you have every right to sort of say that this is not appropriate, this is not proper, um, and so on. But you know why teachers, um, you know, it's like you kind of try to. You can't. You can't immediately know. That's for sure. You can't immediately know. You know that it's. You get people who can give incredibly good talks and so forth and a lot of charisma it doesn't necessarily mean they are actually pure unfortunately or trustworthy 
and the opposite you know, people who can't formulate very much but they're really genuine good beings so you've got to be really just prudent about that transference that occurs and it's important not to lose yourself any teacher who asks you to to lose yourself to, to give yourself away to, to them you don't want to trust them <laughs> it shouldn't be shouldn't, the Buddha didn't ask that you know, you should always maintain your own presence. You know, you can say you can give back to service, or it was always a choice. It's up to you. I should give you that choice. So there's a real sense of proper uh, behaviour around the, the teacher. You know, and the teacher has a certain sense of what's required of them. So. Bowing to the statue of the Buddha is that worshipping an idol. It's pretty much the same thing, actually. You know, the Buddha statue is is there just to 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 carry certain resonances, certain nuances. There, I mean, they didn't used to have them in the time time of the Buddha. In fact, for several hundred years, they created them just as something for like before they had squeaky toys in their pocket. <laughs> You know, something, oh, wake up! That's when wake up, wake up, right? You know, that's what it's about, really. And uh, so, most of the statues of the Buddha that I've bowed—they've never done me a single favor. <laughs> so, not, so I don't think that I'm really worshiping an idol because it, it's more like uh, something that reminds me of human human being. Really, that's the point of it. However, you know, art, art of whatever the artistic convention is, in a sense, is an upright human being and they're peaceful and they have a sense of balance and that says, you know, this is, this is human potential, you, you, you know, remember this. And it's sort of, you know, the things one can look at and probably one of the best things if you can look at anything is not, you know, the motor journal or the fight pages or the, you know, or even the daily news, but fashion pages, you can have something to look at, look at a Buddha. <laughs> and, and help to remember the Dhamma through that. That's, that's the point of it. <laughs> he who sees the Dhamma sees me, said the Buddha. So it's just a, a window to see the Dhamma through, really. Right, I think we'll pause there this evening. Thank you. So might, there's some few other questions that we might be able to kind of weave into other circumstances. So why don't we take a little break and then have a sitting. <laughs>